Well, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. If you don't, you can find one in the pew and turn there anyways. We are going to be finishing up this little section, our last sermon here uh, in our series, Murder Self and Live for God. If you've been here the last three weeks, the sermon have, sermons have kind of been like three blows from a hammer. Um, they're pretty sobering truths, and I could see in the looks of your faces and in the tears in some of your eyes that you were being hammered out on the anvil of Jesus' words, and I just want you to know, I've been there, and for a lot longer than you have. Um, you know, I have to go over my sermon over and over again <laughs> to get it to where it's preachable. And so I have to be exposed to this uh, over and over again. And I realize that it's it's burdening, but it's not bad. It's good. It's good to be searched by God's word, to be confronted with it, to have your sins exposed by it. But as often is the case, when God has a section in his word that, you know, is very forceful and often uh, very confrontive and searching, it is almost invariably followed by a very sweet, wonderful, comforting, merciful text. Uh, he is quick to pour in the balm of grace and mercy and the hope of his promises into our soul so that we are not excessively overcome with grief. And that there, that's not the exception in our text because in verse 27 we have some encouragement. And so what I would like you to do is read along with me. I'm going to read verses 23 through 27 of Luke chapter Chapter 9, you can just follow along and I'll read this. Jesus said, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my word, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus has presents four Truths, four necessary truths in this text, which every Christian needs to know, understand, and experience in order to have hope and comfort. They are, they are ex- Christians indeed and actually going to heaven. The first we learned, you must die to yourself. You must deny yourself. Even though the world says, focus on yourself, be selfish, take time for yourself, have good self-esteem, you know, subscribe to Self Magazine. Um, God says the exact opposite. He says, you need to die to yourself. You need to see yourself as a wretched sinner in need of God's grace. Secondly, we learn that it is folly of internal proportions to think that you could actually save your life and live it by living it for yourself. That somehow by saying no to God, no to Christ, no to eternity, and living selfishly here on earth, preserving your life, saving it for yourself and your own selfish pursuits, that somehow you're going to be saving it that way. Jesus says quite the contrary. Those who wish to save their life for themselves end up in hell for all eternity. 
The antithesis of that is that those who wish to lose their life and, quote, waste it for Christ, those are the ones who will receive life everlasting. They will gain it. Third, we learned last week about the fear that we must reject. The fear that Jesus talks about is that fear which comes from fearing men because of what they might think of us, because of our position that we might lose, because of relationships that might be strained or lost or our fame or whatever it is, that there are things in the world that we want and we lust after. And so we are ashamed of Jesus, ashamed of telling people, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus, ashamed of actually telling people the truth of God's word. And Jesus says, those who are ashamed of him and his words, he will be ashamed of them when he comes back in glory. So that is where we left off. Those were the first three heart searching blows of Jesus's hammerous words. And now we come to verse 27, which is really nothing more than a transitional verse between verses 23 and 27. And the next section, which talks about the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke just includes Jesus' statement so that everybody is ready to receive what he's going to tell us in the verses which follow. And so when you look at this, you might think to yourself, well, you know, so we're going to spend a whole sermon on this? And the answer is yes. And we are going to focus on the reward you will receive this Statement begins in verse 27, if you look there, but I say to you truthfully, and you just need to stop there, notice there is a small little conjunction, but um, Jesus just said, those who are unwilling to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow after him, he will be ashamed of them. And then, but tells us he's going to talk about the exact opposite, the antithesis. What is the antithesis of of Jesus being ashamed of people who are ashamed of him and his words. The antithesis is Jesus being proud of, you might say, glad, um, affirming towards those who have denied themselves, who have taken up their cross, who have followed him, who have proclaimed Jesus in his words. In other words, true believers. So we are talking in this particular message about true believers, not unbelievers. So if you don't know Christ, if you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never been born again or transformed by the gospel of God's grace, this is not true of you yet. It is true, though, of all who know Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say, he enforces this happy antithesis with this phrase, I say to you truthfully, And this is not to say that Jesus um, usually was untruthful. Um, He's not saying, well, you know, usually I lie to you, but I'm going to tell you the truth now. Um, He's not saying that. What he's doing is he's emphasizing the certainty and absoluteness of his comforting words. He really wants to comfort those who are there who are going to follow him or who are following him. And what is the good news? Look at verse 27. Jesus continues, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. 
The phrase, there are some of those standing here, is a reference to those who are present who would actually see God's kingdom before dying. Of course, that is accounted in the verses that following. But the people at this point don't know that. Of course, this would only be true believers. The phrase, will not taste death, is emphatic. They will in no way taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, you can imagine what this crowd thought was thinking, because here you have a bunch of disciples and a a huge crowd of mixed people, and they're probably thinking, Is the kingdom of God going to be realized right now? Is Rome going to be overthrown right now? I mean, what if Edward were to stand up here giving the morning announcements and say, Oh, by the way, some of you will not taste death until you see Jesus face to face. And supposing he had that information and it was true. What would you be thinking? You'd probably be thinking, is the rapture going to happen? Surely the rapture is going to happen. And it's going to happen before some of us die. Who's, who's the youngest person here? You know, 70 years? 40 years? Maybe today? I'm going to see Jesus? People would be excited. They'd be talking. Do you think you're going to make it? You're going to be one? You know, I mean, do I get to see him? People would be wondering about how incredible it would be to actually be able to see Jesus face to face. Some would be fearful, thinking, oh, no. I don't want to see Jesus face to face. I would be ashamed to see Jesus face to face because they would know in their heart they're not living for the Lord. But others would have this great joy, this eager anticipation, would be thinking to themselves, surely I'm one of them. I know the Lord. I love the Lord. He saved me. The rapture's going to happen and it's going to be me. And surely Jesus' statement had the same kinds of effects on the people he was speaking to. I mean, imagine that. Some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And so these thoughts are all running through the disciples' mind and the crowd's mind, and they're wondering, well, what we discover is six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into the mount, often referred to as the Mount of Transfiguration, peels back his his humility and they see him in his glory along with Elijah and Moses and hear the voice of God. And therefore Jesus's words were fulfilled. The psalm were Peter, James and John. So now what do we get to go home? Verse over. (laughs) Um, Not in your life. You know, there's always more in a verse than you can get at first glance. And if you just sit down here and you ponder this verse and you ask yourself, okay, let me think about this. What is the principle here? What is the truth here that is true of any Christian of any age? What is that little sweet drop of nectar we can get out of here and take home with us? And it is this. There are some of you here this morning who will be in God's kingdom and live there for all eternity. Now, I wish I could say you will not taste death before, but I can't do that. You know, the rapture may be prolonged another 500 years. But I can tell you this, and I can tell you this 
truthfully that some of you will exist in heaven, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ for all eternity. Now, I have just created an artificial outline. There were so many things I wanted to say, and there's never enough time. But let me just give you this artificial outline with two points. And the first point is fix your mind on home. You know, if I were to ask you, so where's home? You'd probably say, well, I live in Burbank or, you know, Sunland or Glendale. I said, no, 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 where exactly is your home? I live on such and such a street. And if I pressed you, you know, maybe your zip code. And this, in a biblical sense, would be incorrect. It's not that you would be lying to me about where you're presently living. But you would be incorrect in calling the place where you now live home. Yes, it's your earthly home. It's your temporary residence. But in a biblical sense, this world is not your home. I know that some of you have to travel for business. Some of you are sick and tired of traveling for business. And you fly from place to place, city to city, get out of the airport, get the rent-a-car, drive to your hotel room, you know, hotel, check into your room, get all your junk, take it up there, put the little card in, pop the door open, open it up. And what do you say when you walk in? Ah, I'm home. (laughs) No, Um, another hotel room. And why, why does it not thrill you? Because, listen, you're just staying there so you can get back to where you came from. If you and your family were to go on a vacation and, you know, you're, you're excited about vacation, you're driving around, maybe visiting some relatives, seeing the site, staying in some hotel, maybe doing some camping, you know, it's fun. And, you know, but after a while, it gets kind of old, living out of the suitcase, dirty clothes start piling up, and eventually you turn back. You pull into the driveway and mom says to dad, oh, we're home. See? See? I told you. No. In a biblical sense, in a truer sense, you are not home. You're merely where you are staying for a few days. Worldlings are at home in the world. People like Demas. Do you remember Demas? Paul describes Demas in 2 Timothy 4.10 with these words, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You know, you may feel very comfortable in your home, surrounded by your stuff, your plasma TV, your favorite chair, you know, computers, your junk But James tells us in James 4.4 that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. And that those who love this world are hostile towards God and are not going to heaven. This is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things of the world, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Christ commands believers, don't love the world. 
In John 15, 19, Jesus in his upper room discourse says, If you were of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Jesus says pretty much the same thing when he prays to the Father in John 17, 14, in his high priestly prayer, where he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Did you get that? Chosen out of the world, and not of the world. Beloved of God, when you were chosen to be taken out of the world, that happened in eternity past. You were chosen... To be removed from this evil world system in this sin-cursed place to live in glory, glorified, sinless, and perfect with Christ. Now you may be thinking to yourself, but Jack, oh wait a second here. I'm still here. I, I still live here. I'm still a sinner. My address is city, street, street number, zip code. I'm still here. How can it be true that I'm chosen out of the world, that I'm not of the world, and yet here I am? Listen, one time I was fishing, I caught this fish. It was a trout, I caught several, but one was nice size, and I decided to keep them for dinner, so I was cleaning them. And I noticed in this one fish's stomach, it was pretty, there was something large in there. And I thought, hmm. So I did a little further dissection and out popped a blue-bellied lizard. Now, am I to suppose, because I saw this with my own eyes and experienced it with my own life, that blue-bellied lizards live inside of trout bellies? They die there. They don't live there. In the same way, I exist in a sin-cursed world. And I'm a Christian. I see other Christians living in a sin-cursed world. And they're Christians. But I'm telling you, we're just dying here. This is not where we live. This is not our home. The Bible describes Christians as aliens. Strangers. Foreigners, ambassadors for Christ. All of these terms are terms used to describe people who are away from home. You know, the foreigner lives somewhere else. The alien lives somewhere else. You know, maybe another planet. An ambassador, somebody who's in one place representing the country where he calls home. Thomas Watson rightly said, quote, the world is but a great inn where we are to stay a night or two and be gone. What madness it is. So to set our heart upon our inn as to forget our home. Well, I'm afraid that many Christians have fallen in love with their inn and forgotten where home is. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Verse 34. This is a great text because it shows us 
a group of believers who not only believed heaven was home, but lived it. And look at verse 34. Speaking to these believers, he he says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Notice they didn't just accept the seizure of their houses and their clothes and their money and their property. They did it joyfully. Joyfully. And notice why that they were able to accept it joyfully. They had a better and lasting possession. Where? Hawaii? Tahiti? The Cayman Islands? No. In heaven. In heaven. You're on a business trip. You land, get the car. Drive to your hotel room, and as you're approaching, you see all this black smoke, and as you get closer and closer, there's all sorts of fire engines and, and ambulances and police cars, and you, you get to the first police officer you can find and say, what happened? Police officer says, man, the hotel caught fire and burnt to the ground. Luckily, nobody was, was injured. Now, is this just going to ruin your life? You're just going to be weeping for weeks and months. The hotel burnt down. Why? Oh, it's not your hotel. I mean, you were going to stay there. And yeah, you're inconvenienced. But, you know, you'll find another place. You're just glad you weren't in there when it burnt down. Well, this is the attitude the Hebrews Christians had. Surely they were inconvenienced when everything they had was plundered by those who hated Christ. But it didn't ruin their life. It didn't cause them to go into great distress because they had a possession which could not be taken away from them. They were living in light of eternity. Turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And notice what Paul says here. Verses 1 and 2 of Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This is to be the Christian focus. This is to be the Christian mindset. You live here on earth thinking about heaven all the time, fixing your mind and your heart on the things above where Jesus is at the right hand of the throne of God. Turn back to Luke chapter 10. Look at verse 40. I'm confident that many of us need to receive the rebuke that Christ gave to Martha. Jesus is traveling with his disciples. They come to Martha's house. She says, come in, I'll help you out. So it's Martha and her sister Mary. But Martha wasn't expecting this huge group. She takes it upon herself to turn into, you know, Martha Stewart. (laughs) She decides that she's going to make this big feast and she's all bothered by the preparations. And look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Come on, man. Look at all these people. I got a feast. 
he's terrible. I'm trying to get my act together. I don't have any appliances, electrical ones. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Just read in the spaces there, worldly things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. It was good that Martha wanted to serve Christ. But it was better that Mary wanted to focus her attention on him. Mary had chosen the better part, which was not to be caught up in all the distractions of the world when the Messiah was here on earth, but to be distracted with the Messiah himself. And you know what? These verses we're reading teach us that you as a Christian here on earth need to be distracted with Jesus and the things above. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Sorry about making you go back and forth, but some of you need to pry open the pages of that brand new Bible. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The author of Hebrew tells us where to fix our hearts and minds as we live in this world. He says, therefore, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The great cloud of witnesses being referred to here are all those faithful saints that were just described in chapter 11, who all believe the promises of God and yet never receive them here on earth. The analogy of a runner is that the runner, when he gets ready to run on the race, removes all clothing that might hinder him from his winning, from his running with endurance. The clothing represents those sins, those temptations, those okay things in the world or good things in the world that are not the best things in your pursuit after glory. But did you notice where the Christian runner is to fix his gaze? On Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Just talk to a runner sometime and say, so when you run, do you run for that beginning? Do you really run for the middle of the race as you're turning that big corner? What do you run for? the end the finish i run to win i run to get to the finish line first well the finish line is christ he is the goal he is the finish he is what christians are to keep their eyes fixed on as they run in this world after him and where is jesus the text says at the right hand of the throne of god Now, when you start talking to people about this, people start, well, but 
I mean, what is, I mean, how do we pursue the things above and how do we dwell on things above? I don't even know what heaven is like. You know, they're kind of a little skeptic that, you know, heaven is actually as good as it, you know, people talk about it. I mean, what, what is it even like? What is, what is so neat about heaven? Are you sure it's you know, better than Yosemite? Thomas Watson in his work, The Godly Man's Picture, said, quote, an ignorant man looks at a star and it appears to him like a little silver spot. But the astronomer who has his instruments to judge the dimension of the star knows it to be many degrees bigger than the earth. So a natural man hears of the heavenly country that it is very glorious, but it is at a great distance. And because he is not a spirit of discernment, the world looks bigger in his eye. But such as our spiritual artists who have the instrument of faith to judge heaven will say it is by far the better country and they will hasten there with the sails of desire, end quote. So Christian, what is your home like? Okay, heaven is your home. You are to think about heaven. You are to fix your mind on the things above, on Jesus. What is that like? Well, let me just tell you. You're going to enjoy food there. That's good. I mean, we all like eating. You won't get fat either. You won't get overweight. You just eat for pleasure. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room as he's instituting the Lord's Supper? He says, I will not drink the fruit of this vine again with you until I drink it anew with you in my kingdom. In Revelation 19.9, it says, Then he said to me, Write and blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In Revelation 21, John describes the tree of life which bears its fruit in every season. Uh, and you read commentaries and go, Well, this is symbolic. This isn't actually a literal tree. Well, it's the same one that was in the garden. Of Eden, that God put cherubim in front of and a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve wouldn't, what, symbolically eat it? I mean, just think about your favorite food. You know, that nice, hot, juicy steak with just a little bit of salt on it. A thick chocolate malt and a hot summer day. Or that perfectly ripe, ripe peach, you know, those ones that you bite in, but you have to lean over the sink because they're just dripping and you're so good. Or maybe that perfect cup of coffee on a rainy day, a day off. <laughs> or hot brownies with cold ice cream. Mmm. Lobster. Dipped in butter. <laughs> you're going, you're killing me. It's almost lunch. Well, listen, that stuff is trash. That stuff is garbage compared to what we'll be eating in heaven. That's just sin cursed food for sin cursed men compared to the gastronomical delights of heaven. I mean, what iron chef with limited skills and limited ingredients and limited equipment can compete with God Almighty, who not only has 
unlimited ability to create out of nothing, unlimited ingredients which he could conjure up, but also a perfect knowledge of you, and he could make the perfect dish just for you, without any problem, every day. So you'll eat in heaven, and it'll be good. Better than anything you ever had here. You'll also have a perfect body. That sounds better and better the older I get. <laughs> First Corinthians 13, 9 through 13. First Corinthians 15, 47 through 57 tell us that we will have a perfect, immortal, resurrected body that will last for all eternity. It will never hurt. It will never wear out. It'll never get sick. It'll never get injured. It's just going to be perfect. Perfect. You'll feel perfect. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, for our citizenship is in heaven. From which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Find a perfectly fit, athletic young man in the prime of life, full of energy, full of vitality, quick, alert, just stamina, an infidel, a weakling, a sin-cursed child of Adam ravaged by millennia. Of the curse, as feeble as dust, a worm to be pitied. Oh, but in heaven, you will have a perfect body. Not only we have a perfect body, you'll be perfect in spirit. And this is where it really starts getting good. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews twelve twenty two through 23, that believers in heaven are spirits of righteous men made perfect. You will be perfect, holy, without sin, not even a trace of a wicked thought, ever, only perfect. It's hard to even imagine. I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, oh, you know, how would that be? I don't know. I'm so sinful, I can't even think about how it would be not to be this way. Those of you who have strong marriages, who just love your spouse and just love being around them and love spending time with them, and they're just your closest friend, and you could just barely endure to even think of being parted from them, and you both argue about who's going to die first. (laughs) Consider how close you are with your spouse. And just... Love spending time with them and think about what Jesus said to those who are married here in this life and die. He says, for in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now think about that. As close as your love is and as intense as it is towards your spouse, that's nothing. Compared to the relationships you will have with 
everyone in heaven. You are a sinner. Your spouse is a sinner. And though you may love your spouse as much as you can here in your sin cursed state, it will be nothing compared to the love that you have that unconditional self-sacrificing love, expecting nothing in return that you will have for everyone in heaven. You will love without reservation and without hesitation, expecting nothing in return. And rightly so, because I'm telling you, other people are going to be easy to love. They're going to be perfect. Every one of them. And it's easy to love a perfect person because they're perfectly trustworthy. They will love you perfectly too, expecting nothing in return. And love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control will be yours in perfection and everybody else will have it in perfection. You will love everyone more in heaven than you do your spouse here and now on earth. And there will be nothing to fear. No one's going to hurt you. Jesus is watching. You will exist every moment of eternity with peace and comfort, the likes of which that words cannot express and imagination cannot conjure up. You walk up to a complete stranger, someone you've never met before, and you trust them implicitly. And they trust you implicitly they're perfect you're perfect and so you talk about heaven and you talk about christ and the angels and salvation and god's grace and meeting the apostles and talking to bible characters and meeting famous preachers and women missionaries and People you'd only read about in books here on earth and you've talked with them and you share your experiences and you bless each other and you talk about how good God is and you do this for all eternity and you never forget anything. Ever. Forever and ever. No forgetting. You're perfect. And all of this will cause... in inside of you just to want to just constantly praise God and you will and he'll accept it in Matthew 25 14 through 30 the parable of talents not only teaches that we will be perfect in body perfect in spirit have very close relationships but that will also be given responsibilities I mean think about you know Hollywood and how they portray heaven some you know stark white cloud Somebody trying to figure out how to play the one-handed harp. Dare, dare, dare. It's like boring, you know. Who wants to go to heaven, you know, where the fun is, is at Joe's Bar and Grill. In Revelation seven fifteen through 17, we read, For this reason... They are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst any more. Nor will the sun beat down on them nor any heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You like to sing? Maybe you wish you could sing. You're going to sing in heaven. You are going to sing in heaven. And I imagine you're going to have a good voice, a great voice, a perfect one. 
Revelation 15.3 speaks of the saints in heaven singing the praises of God. Revelation 19.1-8 speaks of worshiping God. Isaiah 6.3 says the angels will be with there. Imagine if you can this. Imagine a perfect choir in perfect pitch, in perfect harmony, stretching for miles. Angels and men and women made perfect. And imagine what it would sound like, the sounds of millions of voices and instruments of men, women, and angels reverberating through the corridors of the throne room of God. But wait, someone says, I've really suffered here on earth and I have a lot of painful memories and I I, I can't keep from thinking about my sin. What about the memories of sin and, and suffering and, and death? Isaiah sixty five seventeen. For behold, I create a new heavens, a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. You know, some people think, oh yeah, God's going to erase our memories. I don't think so. I mean, that's all we are is our memories. But what could he mean? I think that what the Bible describes when it says us not remembering things or things not coming to mind is that when we're perfect in heaven and we're sinless in heaven, why would we dwell on sin? We're going to have a lot better things to think about than those things. So we aren't going to recall them to mind. They're not going to come to mind because they're just painful thoughts, a bad dream that's over with. Here we grieve that sinners die and perish in hell. But in heaven, the scriptures say the saints cry out for the sinner's destruction and rejoice when God judges them. Here we sin and are sinned against and we suffer the consequences of it and it's painful and it's hurtful. But there, there's no sin. Ever. No one ever hurts anybody. No one ever suffers any consequence of sin. Sin is conquered, it's cured, it's eradicated from heaven. The Apostle John, describing a scene in heaven in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, wrote, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and they will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer be any death, and there will be no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so I'm telling you, the Christian perspective, the command of God is to keep your thoughts focused on home. Secondly, picture Jesus. The Apostle John gives believers some very comforting words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where he says, Beloved, Now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. We've already touched on this. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Does this mean that when we'll be like Jesus, that... We're going to be omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present, and we'll be God. No. But we will be sinless like Jesus. We will be glorified like Jesus. 
Remember how Jesus appeared to the, the apostles? He just kind of showed up into the room, came through the walls. And then he ate and then he left, but not through the door. You are going to be like Jesus. Jesus was able to chew up food and swallow it and it didn't fall on the floor. And when he left, it wasn't strained out and left behind in the room. He was glorified. You will be glorified. He had substance. You could feel him, but not an earthly substance. When you're glorified, you'll be able to take your hand, stick it through a piece of plate steel, feel it on both sides. Substance. Heavenly substance. That's not of this world. But what about the phrase, because we will see him just as he is? This is something to set your mind upon. This is something to spend as much time meditating on as you can afford. Have you ever thought about seeing Jesus? You know, I think some people think, oh yeah, in heaven I'm going to see Jesus. But do you think about it? Seeing him face to face right now. You're raptured. You're glorified. You're in heaven. You're standing before Jesus. What do you do? You ever thought about that? What are you going to do? If you're a Christian, you're going to be before Jesus. What are you going to do? Let's think about it. There he is. Maybe your first thought is, he's a man. But I knew that. You know, he's five foot nine. His hair isn't like I thought. He isn't anything like I thought. He's not like those pictures from the Renaissance. His nose is smaller. But you're looking at Jesus. And he's different than you ever imagined. But he is Jesus. And he's smiling at you. And he enjoys seeing you. As a matter of fact, he's waited a long time to see you. You don't feel guilt or shame because he's taken all that out of the way. And you begin to kneel because you realize, oh, this is the creator of the universe. This is my Lord and Savior. And he says, no, do not kneel, brother, sister. I want you to stand in my presence, blameless with Great joy. So you stand and you kind of look at the ground because you're still kind of feeling unworthy to even look at him in the face. And he says, no, look at me face to face. He says, I love you. Do you see these scars in my brow? Do you see these scars on my hands? Do you see them on my feet? I love you. I died for you. And then he reaches out to you. And the thought comes to your mind. Can I hug the son of God? (laughs) Can I embrace my creator and my savior? Is that okay? And he knows your every thought. 
And he says, yes. And you embrace your Savior and Lord. And now you're overwhelmed with a deep, deep sense of unworthiness. Do you weep over your sins? Do you ask for forgiveness? Do you just grovel after that? I mean, what do you do? No, he says, you have no sin. I have made you perfect. I have cleansed you with my blood. I have forgiven you. You are justified by my death on your behalf. And like iron, you're just drawn to the magnet of his eternal love. And you are now with your closest friend who has loved you until the end, the one that sticks closer than a brother. And you fix your eyes on Jesus there before you. And you think about that. It's going to happen. And it's going to be good. Charles Spurgeon in a sermon entitled The Hope for Future Bliss said, The vision of God to see him face to face, to enter into heaven and to see the righteous shining bright as the stars in the firmament. But best of all, to catch a glimpse of the eternal throne. Ah, there he sits. To almost blasphemy for me to attempt to describe him. How infinitely far my poor words fall below the mighty subject. But to behold God's face. I will not speak of the luster of those eyes or of the majesty of those lips. That shall, that shall speak words of love and affection. But to behold his face. Ye who have dived into God's deepest sea and have been lost in its immensity. Ye can tell a little of it. Ye naughty ones who have lived in heaven these thousand years. Perhaps you know. But ye cannot tell. What it is to see his face. We must each of us go there. We must be clad with immortality. We must go above the blue sky and bathe in the river of life. We must outsoar the lightning and rise above the stars to know what it is to see God's face. And words cannot set it forth. End quote. Now does this bore you? You want me to talk about TVs, computers, the latest cars, fashion, money? Do you want me to dwell on the world with its immorality and its cruelty and its vice? Do you desire to be consumed and to fix your thoughts on the things below in the sewage pit of Satan's world? No. So what has happened? What has happened? You've fixed your mind on Jesus. That's what's happened. I've encouraged you to take your mind and fix it on the things above. And you're caught up there. Because the Holy Spirit and Christ within you longs to be home. And when I explain that, you're thinking, yes. Yes, keep going, Pastor Jack. 
Do you see why it is good to keep your eyes fixed on your home, on the things above, on Jesus? It helps you to say no to all of the barking temptations and sins and futility of this world and to see it in its proper perspective. The chorus of the old hymn says it all. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That people is why we need to fix our hearts on our home and keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We are so privileged to have your word. And Father, those of us who know you want to confess our sins that, yes, we have often been caught up in this world. We have been distracted by perishing things. And Father, we would ask you to help us fix our minds on Jesus and the things above so that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And Father, if there are those here, which I know there are, who don't know you, who are still caught up and lusting after the things of the world who maybe are willing to be religious, but not repentant unto salvation. I pray that they would see the futility of the path they are taking, that in trying to save their life, they will lose it. I pray that they would humble their hearts, cry out to you, receive the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved by your grace, by trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And Father, that you would make them children who then live the rest of their days on earth with their eyes fixed on the things above too. Help us to all do that because we know it's your will because we've seen it in your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.